0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church This teaching is from the series sit walk stand during this series We will take a short journey through the book of Ephesians and learn about our position in Christ our life in the world and our warfare with the enemy We're gonna be talking about the, uh, the verb stand as we've been looking at sit walk and now stand So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, the text is there in your little welcome booklet. It'll also be up here on the screen, and uh, you can follow along or uh, pull out your Bible. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 6, hear now the word of the living and sovereign God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So today we're going to be kind of concluding this series, and if we follow Paul's metaphor, you remember we began with sit, this position of rest, and then we moved to walk, But now we find out that Paul's gonna conclude the metaphor by saying, in essence, that our walking is an army that's been marching towards warfare. And at the end, when we finally get to the place of battle, we are going to now, he tells us, stand. We sit with Christ and we walk with him, and when Satan attacks, we are going to stand. And there really is no other outcome, if you're following Paul's metaphor, that an army doesn't just walk to wander around, it walks to where the battle is, and then it stands when it gets there. Now, I wanna say really clearly today, this is just going to be one teaching on spiritual warfare, which is a massive topic. Uh, I actually did seven week series in 2017. You can look up on the church website, it's also referenced there in the uh, welcome booklet and it was in the uh, bridge guide. So you can look up all of those where there's a lot more information than I can possibly go through today to talk about kind of the specifics of spiritual warfare, what it is, and how we walk it out. And in that, I actually went through kind of all the pieces of the armor and all that kind of stuff, which I'm not going to have time to do today. But that is there. I also encourage you, a couple of books that deal with this that are great if you want to learn more about it is uh, probably my favorite is Screw Tape Letters. Uh, by C.S. Lewis, where he gives kind of insight into looking at spiritual warfare from the perspective and the side of the demons. So what they're looking at, what they're trying to accomplish, but it's very, very insightful into the ways that the enemy works. And also the old classic Pilgrim's Progress has a lot in that about how the enemy is at work. So I encourage you to look at those. Today we're going to take a brief look at this topic of spiritual warfare. It's a really, really important topic. And uh, so let's go ahead and we're going to dive right in. Now, notice here, I remind you, in our series we're talking about sit, walk, stand. And that order is not random. It's very purposeful it's mandatory that we follow that order. Sometimes you can rearrange things. In this case, you cannot. You must sit before you walk. You must walk before you stand. Now, why do I say that? There are several reasons. Number one, the order of the letter teaches us this. So if you notice today in our text, in Ephesians 6, 11, and then down in verses 13 and 14, three times Paul uses the verb and tells us to stand. And along with that, there's also, you may notice uh, in verse 13, the verb withstand, which is just really the, uh, the Greek word against and the Greek word stand smushed together. So it's literally to stand against, to withstand the assault of the enemy. And this is the first uh, time that these words occur in the book. In fact, this is the only occurrences of the verb stand or withstand in the entire book. So remember, walk was the verb that dominates in chapters one and two, and and the implications carry over through chapter three. Uh, I mean, sit is the one that's in chapters one and two, and carry over to chapter three. Walk is chapters four and five in the beginning of chapter six, and then finally we arrive at stand. So the order of the whole letter tells us sit is first, walk is second, stand is third but not only that we have to remember the whole point that we've really been seeing and i've been trying to drive home in this series is this idea of being seated with christ means our life is in christ and our power for living the christian life for walking comes from our sitting and our power to stand our power to do spiritual warfare comes from being seated with christ so notice here in verse 10 paul says that finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So he doesn't say get out there and engage in spiritual warfare one more time. All the way at the end of the letter, though he's been drawing on this metaphor of being seated with Christ and all the blessings we have from that, Paul says now that I'm going to move to the final thing and talk about spiritual warfare, I want to remind you again, your strength does not come from yourself. Your strength comes from Christ. The the Lord there that's being referenced is, is certainly the Lord Jesus. Uh, that he is talking about. And he says, I want you to be strong in the Lord. So our strength comes from him and his might, and we draw upon that strength because we are seated with him in the heavenly places, what Paul has talked about throughout the letter. So not only is it the order, but in fact Paul begins speaking about stand by saying remember where you draw your strength from. Because if we forget, if we don't keep going back to sit, we're going to find ourselves cut off from our source of power. Thirdly, it's important because notice that our armor is the armor of God. So even when we're talking about doing spiritual warfare, it is not something we do in our own strength, nor do we do it with our own resources. Paul references in verses 11 and 13 the armor of God twice, and both times he specifies it is the armor of God. The armor belongs to God. The armor is provided by God to us. It's his battle armor that he gives to us. I dealt with this a lot more in that series. We had a teaching that really kind of dove into this a lot and looked at it. But what this means is this armor that we're given is part of our inheritance of what it means to be in Christ. Again, this is not a secondary thing that a few Christians have done something and earned to have this armor, and therefore now they can become kind of elite forces. No, no, When you are in Christ, you are given full inheritance, and that inheritance includes this armor of God. And we're going to see that's necessary because if you are in Christ, you are in spiritual warfare. There is no getting away from that. There is no hiding. There's no cutting a deal with the devil and he'll leave you alone. It doesn't work that way. To be in Christ is to be called to stand and to engage in spiritual warfare. There is no getting away. But the last area that I want to remind us, so all of this goes back to sit, but there's also an important order that just as you must sit before you walk and you must sit before you can stand, so you must walk. Before you stand, it couldn't be sit, stand, walk. Even though we might think, you know, getting up out of a chair, that would be the metaphor, but Paul doesn't develop it that way because, in fact, you cannot stand in spiritual warfare until you are walking. Now, why I say this is notice in Ephesians 6 10, after Paul's gone through two and a half chapters of walk, he says, finally, in the Greek, it's literally as for the rest. You know, So I've taught you all this stuff about sitting and then walking. Now I'm going to get to the last topic. Finally, we're going to talk about standing. And it is the last thing. And it's imperative that we understand this because you cannot wage war against the enemy if you are in fact walking in his ways. It's not possible. If I sense Satan is bringing deception into my family, or a circle of people with whom I am close, or into my congregation, and I say, I want to be engaged. Lord, I want to stand against that. And I myself am receiving falsehoods and passing falsehoods on, and I am not speaking truthful. Friend, you can wake up every morning. You can fast. You can do all this and claim that you're doing spiritual warfare. It's all for naught. Because what you're actually doing is bringing the Trojan horse right in the gate with our own behavior. I cannot stand against that which I am personally embracing in my own life. It's, it's kind of like, you know, and not that any other parents have ever done this, but I was tempted when my children are young, and believe it or not, when you have four young kids, it sometimes gets really loud in the house. And so what do parents sometimes do? That brilliant thing that to get peace and quiet, you start shouting yourself, right? Which, oddly enough, does not bring peace and quiet into the house. It usually just makes it louder. Well, it's the same way. I can't stand against the very thing that I am engaging in myself. So it has to be this order of sit, walk, stand. And let me say, this is also important because when we're talking about spiritual warfare, we're going to talk a little bit about discerning some things. I also can't stand against Satan or blame Satan for what I've brought into my own life by my own disobedience. If I have not walked in the ways of God, if I, in fact, have walked in disobedience to God's ways, and that brings about the inevitable results of disobedience to God, I can't then stand up and declare war on Satan for doing this to me because I, in fact, did it to myself. If I run off at the mouth and then get myself fired from my jaw or get in trouble, the, the, this is not Satan attacking me. This is me directly disobeying how God told me to walk here in the book of Ephesians, to control my tongue, to watch my speech, to speak words of grace. So I cannot blame and do spiritual warfare against something that I have brought on to myself. And we very, very often do this. I can't say my body's falling apart, I'm under attack. If I'm, you know, I'm coming against the devil because he's giving me the emphysema while I'm smoking six packs of cigarettes a day. No, my behavior is giving me the emphysema, not the enemy. And I've chosen to walk in that path and so spiritual warfare is not about that it's imperative that we understand the mandatory preparation to stand is consistent meditation upon the fact that i am already seated with christ that i already sit with him and then walking in obedience to his ways now we're never going to walk perfectly But it means I'm not knowingly, consistently walking in something that is directly violating what Christ is calling and then saying I'm going to engage in warfare against that. We can't do that. So the whole order is imperative. Sit, walk, stand. Now, what do we mean when we say stand? When we come to this, what is it? Well, stand, Paul's referring to our warfare with the enemy. So the first point is, well, who are we standing against? And this is really important. The church has messed this up for much of our history, and we, in fact, mess it up very often today. The enemy is Satan and his demonic forces, not other people. Okay? Your spouse is not the one you're doing spiritual warfare against. Okay? Nor is your neighbor who you're not getting along with. Notice what Paul says but on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the, who? Devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So I almost made a flowchart here. Here's how this works for you. Uh, can you go to the next slide, Beth? Uh, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. If you look up here, notice there, it says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I almost did a flowchart. Here's the question you ask yourself. When you are dealing with something, Does this thing, entity, have flesh and blood? If the answer is no, it might be spiritual warfare. If the answer is yes, I can touch them, you are not doing spiritual warfare with them. You might not be getting along with them. You might be having problems, but that is not spiritual warfare. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood blood. It's a categorical statement. And that means it is wrong for me to use spiritual warfare terms about other human beings that I am having dealings with or I am doing. Paul is clear. Our enemy is Satan and his demon, not other human beings. And so the focus of spiritual warfare is never, never another person. You can't, that person's being controlled by demons. that's, That's not the way spiritual warfare works. Paul tells us that. It is not against flesh and blood. It is always Satan and his destructive purposes. Now, I bring this up because the church has messed this up many times. When Islam was spreading and had conquered the Holy Land, the church, under the rubric of spiritual warfare, started crusades which pretty much had the grand effect of ending the Byzantine Empire and creating havoc and death and mayhem all over the place, and it had nothing to do with spiritual warfare. This was just people who wanted to conquer and people who oftentimes it was about money, it was all kinds of other things, but we used the language of spiritual warfare completely improperly when we did that, and we do the same thing today. Please be extremely careful of using warfare language for your interactions with other people. You may be in the right. They may be advocating things that are destructive to other human beings or to our culture at large. Please do not use spiritual warfare language relative to that other person because all we're doing then is mixing things up and getting it. In fact, if you look through the letter, What is my responsibility with my unbelieving neighbors? It's not stand, it's walk. Walk in obedience to God's commands, walk in grace, walk in love, speak the word of God to them, show them grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's not standing up and rebuking them in the name of Jesus and calling fire down out of heaven or something. Okay, that is not what we're gonna do. You remember the disciples literally did that. Samaria didn't receive Jesus, and James and John said, do you want us to call fire out of heaven and consume them? You can look this up in Luke chapter nine, and Jesus says, you still don't even get the spirit of which I, I didn't come to destroy people, I came to save them. And friends, it is a temptation. I many times in my youth threatened to call fire out of heaven on people, halfway joking, hoping God would back me up if I so did, okay? not appropriate. It's not what we're called to do. Our struggle is against spiritual forces, not other people. And this is a huge temptation for us to make everything cosmic when it in fact is not. Secondly, spiritual warfare does require active obedience from us. Now the verb stand can make it sound passive. And I'm going to explain in a moment why Paul says stand rather than attack. But We are commanded to do something in this spiritual warfare. Notice in Ephesians 6, 11, 13, 14, and 17, Paul uses these verbs, and he uses them a couple times each. He says, put on the whole armor of God, take up the whole armor of God, put on the breastplate, and take the helmet of salvation. It's kind of interesting. He does it a little backwards, if you will. But his point is, you got to take up the armor. God has provided the armor. God provides the strength. But you have to actually take up the armor, and you actually have to put the armor on. It does no good that God has provided armor if you and I aren't actively taking it up and putting it on to be prepared for battle. Paul tells us here, you have to do it, and these are actually imperatives. You remember I described a couple of weeks ago that in this letter... There's no imperatives. Well, there's one to remember that we had been cut off from God. But prior to Ephesians chapter 4, there's no imperatives in the letter. We're not commanded to do anything. It's just all that God has done for us. Imperatives are what we're commanded to do. These are imperatives. Take up the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. You and I are commanded to do that because it is active. Paul's telling us, look, spiritual warfare is a reality. If you are seated in Christ and you are then walking as you're called, you are going to crest a hill and the enemy is going to be there. And you need to take up your armor and you need to put on your armor. Secondly, notice within this, we're not only given those commands, but the verb Paul uses for the spiritual warfare is a very active verb. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not the normal word used for wrestling. It means to enter into a contest, to enter into a conflict, because his metaphor here is really uh, kind of a military metaphor, but you know he doesn't use the verb for go to war either. He, he just says, enter into this contest, enter into this active struggle, this active wrestling against what's going on. So being told to stand is not passive. It is an active stance and position we have that the enemy is going to be attacking. We are actively resisting these attacks. And that means we have to be consciously aware of his schemes and attacks and to actively resist them. Now, this should bring up a question, well, then why did Paul use the word stand? Paul uses the word stand because we stand in the victory of Christ. So Paul's wanting to build this metaphor. Remember, in chapter 1, Christ is seated in heaven, and where is he relative to all other authorities and powers in the universe? Is Jesus in some kind of a cosmic wrestling match right now? No. Everything is his. He has all authority, all power. So Paul, in following that metaphor, is not telling us to conquer anything. He is saying, I want you to stand because you are standing in the victory of Christ. So every time the command is given here, it is to stand because we're not being commanded to attack, but rather to go ahead and recognize Christ has already won the battle the victory is his and he is already seated far above satan and his demonic forces and what this means is as i go into battle i rest assured in full assurance of victory because christ has already won he has given us his strength he has given us his armor and so the victory is already ours in christ this battle is not doubtful in what its outcome is it may look like in this short little conflict that we're looking at at the moment that somehow the thing is in doubt, but it is not in doubt at all. Watchman Nee, the old Chinese Christian that uh, had written a book that kind of goes along with this theme: sit, walk, stand. Put it this way: we do not fight for victory; we fight from victory. This is going back to being seated with Christ. This is where the power comes from. Now I bring this up because this is essential as you face the, the attacks of the enemy. Let, let me critique another thing that I see and hear in Christians today. We sound very often down and out. You, my friend, should be the eternal optimist. The battle is already won. The song we sang this morning that Tom had chosen from Revelation, a great song to go along with what we're doing, notice in the book of Revelation, it doesn't say the Lamb is going to overcome. The song is the Lamb has overcome. It's already done. It's already past tense. The gospel is going to go forth. The kingdom of God is going to conquer the kingdom of darkness all evil is going to be banished God is going to keep you and me he is going to bring us to himself all of this is assured by Christ so Paul doesn't change the metaphor to suddenly like somehow the battles in doubt and you and I've got to get out and do something no Christ has already done we simply stand in what we've been given Please let this sink into your bones. There are too many Christians today, I mention this because I hear it over and over again, that make it sound as if the church is on the edge of extinction. The church has never grown faster. The church has never been larger than the church is right now. The gospel has never uh, progressed and gone forward and flourished as it is right now at this moment. Do you know where missiologists think the fastest growing church in the world is? What country? It's Iran. Iran, friends. It is is growing there. We've heard from the missionary we support doing underground work there. The gospel is flourishing. 120 years ago, there was a major missions movement to go to Africa, because Africa was the dark continent. The gospel had not penetrated. By 2050, they estimate that six of the 10 most populous Christian countries in the world are going to be in Africa. Nigeria, Ethiopia, Uganda, all of these countries are all going to have hundreds of millions of Christians. The gospel is flourishing. In Nigeria, there is, they are under attack. Literally, they are under attack. Christians are being slaughtered and put to death, and the gospel continues to grow and flourish. Friends, be eternal optimists. Go to the last page of Revelation and read it. The script is already written. The script is Jesus wins. That's it. So this is not in doubt. We should always be optimistic. It does not matter what goes on in Washington, D.C. It does not matter what goes on in the UN. It does not matter what anybody else is doing. The gospel will prevail, period. And that should anchor us stand in what is already done. We are not trying to win. The battle's already been won by Christ. We are standing in the victory that has already been won. Now, how do we actually stand then? What does that mean? If I sense that the enemy is at work somewhere, say in my family, and again, I'll talk about this in a couple minutes, but if I sense that something is going on and this isn't just a a little bit of a conflict, the, the enemy might be working here, how do I stand? The primary way we stand in spiritual warfare is through prayer. Notice how Paul moves down in verse 18. And the ESV has broken this up into a uh, couple sentences because, again, Paul seems to be doing a very long run-on sentence. Okay, there doesn't there doesn't seem to be a real verb there. It's all what's called participle. So it really is just kind of a long sentence where he's been telling you, take up all this armor. And then when he does it, he doesn't start a new sentence. He says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And then the ESV's got a, a new sentence, but it's really not. It's Uh, towards keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And he goes on and says, "In praying for me. When I was a young person, I kind of wrestled with this a little bit, and I was like, so you've been doing armor, and now all of a sudden it's prayer, and what's the relationship? Here's the relationship. Prayer is the warfare, friends. That's how we do it. Prayer is how we do it. So notice in verse 18, He's got praying and prayer, and supplication is in there twice. Uh, All of that is in one verse. Because Paul's been saying, I want you to get strong. I want you to be mighty. I want you to put on the armor because you're going to go into war. And what is the war? It is prayer. Prayer and supplication. And he lists it out. So we take up this armor so that we can engage in this. So this is imperative for us to understand. Just as Paul said, look, your struggle's not against flesh and blood. He's telling us you're also not going to use flesh and blood weapons. The battle is won in prayer. It is not won in politics, it's not won in slick marketing campaigns, it's not some little idea I came up with that's going to accomplish the work of God. And when people want to turn to those other things first or when they want to turn to them more than to prayer, what is a sign is I really don't trust the way God says things ought to be. I really think it's going to be I'm not resting in him. I'm not seated with Christ. I'm out on my own. I'm not drawing upon his strength. I'm actually trying to fight in my own. I'm not using his weapons because, thank you, I think my weapons are actually better. Friends, this is a huge temptation for the church. And if you want to know how huge a temptation it is, call a prayer meeting and see how many people show up. They're universally the meetings that people don't want to go to. And I can say this, sadly, I've been a pastor here for 26 years. When I try to gather other pastors to pray, you want to get them to talk about a marketing campaign to do something, you can pack the room talk about how to get more people to come to your church and join you can pack the room say let's get together to pray hardly anybody wants to show up and then they're shocked if you actually spend time in prayer it's I, i'm privileged to be part of a group that i love and when people first come that's one of the comments wow you said it was an hour-long prayer meeting and we actually prayed for like 50 minutes yeah because because that's what a prayer meeting is for <laughs> oddly enough It's to pray, that's what we do. If I join an exercise group, I expect to exercise, not sit around eating cheesecake all the time, right? But we don't do that, and the reason is because at the root, I really trust that somehow it's gonna be won by something else. I gotta market this thing better, or we're gonna hire some consultant, we're we're gonna get a law passed, we're gonna do these things. That is not how spiritual warfare is conducted. And when the church does that we're showing ourselves to be bankrupt so notice paul says it's going to be in prayer and he goes on as well i've got up there in the orange keep alert with all perseverance he's saying look the enemy is going to keep dinging and banging away he's going to keep doing this you got to be alert which is a term that is very often used with prayer in the new testament and you got to persevere which is a term that is almost universally used with prayer in the New Testament. And he's saying, look, there's a spiritual warfare that's raging around you, and you're not going to escape from it, and I want you to be alert, and I want you to keep persevering in the battle as it actually exists, which is the battle of prayer. You've got to hang in there, and you've got to keep doing this. And he says, so don't be ignorant of the fact, don't miss that the attacks are happening, and don't pick up the wrong weaponry. Because you cannot fight a spiritual warfare with carnal weapons. You remember in, uh, what movie? I think it was The Untouchables where Sean Connery's character, well he utters some terms that I won't use, but he tells a guy who's shown up and the guy's got a knife and Connery's got a gun and he says, you know, just like one of you guys to show up to a gunfight with a knife. Friend, you don't want to show up to spiritual warfare with the wrong weaponry. Because you're going to be massively outgunned if you do. So there's great, there's two great dangers here for Christians when we consider this wrestling in prayer. Number one is that we're asleep and ignorant of spiritual attacks. Again, when we come to applying the word in just a minute, I'm going to bring this up to you, but, but do you realize that sometimes it may seem like things are falling apart around you, and it may not just be something natural going on. It may actually be evidence that the enemy is attacking. He is working, and we need to be engaged in spiritual warfare. The other one is that when I recognize he's there, I try to trust in carnal weapons. And that doesn't work. It does not work. And, and this is, to be real practical, for just a moment, I remember with, with you know, our, our kids, trying to raise them. None of that is an excuse to not raise them according to biblical commands. I have to do all the walk. But there were times that things were going on, and I needed to recognize reading another book on good fatherhood was not going to resolve it. There was something spiritual going on, and I had exactly one thing I could do, which was to take up the armor of God and to engage in spiritual warfare through prayer for my kids. I remember wearing out the paths at Quiet Waters Park for some of my kids when they were teenagers for God to break through and do something. And there is no other. And I'm telling you, that was not my first tendency okay? I, I, I had a child going through something at one point, and um, my, my response to it was their problem is S-I-N, and I am God's solution to that problem, and I'm going to fix that. And I did not. <laughs> it just stirred up more S-I-N in me, and then more in them, okay? And it doesn't get resolved until we go off and we actually get on our knees and start crying out to God. Now, the last aspect is we also stand in prayer for the gospel to go forth because ultimately this is about the flourishing of the gospel. So notice where Paul turns in verse 19. He said, you know, I want you to be praying for all the saints. He says, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul wants and needs for them to pray for the gospel to go forth. If the Apostle Paul is saying, please be praying for me, I need to be bold, we all need to be praying for one another. Paul is praying that there would be open doors. He's praying that the gospel would be extended. This is why, and I want to encourage you, every Sunday there is a chance for spiritual warfare. When we pray for our missionaries, you can engage in it. Friends, we need to be passionate for the cause of the gospel in China. The the, uh, premier of China right now is trying to work. They are trying to crush the church. Are we going to be found in battle? Are we going to be found being alert and praying, or is Jesus going to wander by and we're going to be like Peter, James, and John there in the garden? In the moment of battle, we're snoring. Which is it going to be for us? The gospel is the primary thing. And it must always be the primary thing. What we are praying for, when you're talking about spiritual attacks in your family, is your deepest desire for your children that the gospel would lay hold of their hearts, that they would flourish spiritually. Or am I more concerned about what college they're going to get into and what job they're going to have later? I'll refer back to the text and the teaching that Scott did a few weeks ago. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What good is it to stand on Judgment Day and say, God, I got my kids into the best school, and they got the best job, and they were financially well off. They were living the American dream. And to have him say, and they did not know me because you were more concerned about that than you were about the gospel flourishing in their lives. Is that what we're praying for? That's what spiritual warfare is really about. We should be praying for those in our circle of influence. We should be praying. Have your your antenna up, your, your radar going for people who are moving into your area. I remember we had some friends a few years ago that Linda and I, I was actually helping coach a couple of Little League teams that year, and suddenly we noticed that there were two different teams that I had boys on, and there were two boys from this family on each of those teams, and the family had just moved a block away from us. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack, but at that point I thought, maybe God's got them here for a reason. Maybe we ought to start praying for them and asking God to open doors for them and for the gospel to flourish in their life. And that woman did become a believer, actually, through Linda getting up and going out and exercising with her at like 5.30 a.m. And if you know my wife, that was a sacrifice for the kingdom right there. And did it, and when she got struck with cancer, the first person she called was Linda. And we had the privilege of seeing her come to Christ. I wish I could say she had been healed, but I got to stand here and do her funeral. Friends, are our eyes open? as to why that person is coming next to us and what's going on. Now, what this means is uh, that when we are standing, the ultimate focus in our spiritual warfare is the success of the gospel, the growth of God's kingdom in the world today and into the future. That's what stand is about. Not that I get a comfortable life, not that everything goes the way I want, would, would we be content if America fell apart economically and our place in the world receded, but we spiritually prospered? Or, and, and, and be careful when you answer it, because I, I like having my comfortable lifestyle, but am I more concerned about the prospering of the gospel See, Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains. If getting the gospel to Rome means they clasp me in chains and it may ultimately mean that my head goes off, so be it. The gospel is what matters. Now, how do we apply this? There's two main questions I want to ask, and then I'll kind of wrap up the series. First question, do I understand the reality of spiritual warfare? This sounds strange when I, when I kind of talk about these things. But spiritual warfare is not fictional. It's not like the Hollywood movies that you watch, you know, where there's all of this stuff going on. It's one of the reasons I love screw tape letters, if you read it by C.S. Lewis. Spiritual warfare is going on in some of the most mundane things that you're ignoring, and I'm ignoring and we're missing, that actually this is where the spiritual warfare is happening. It is a reality all around us. It didn't just exist in the past. It's not something that happens to a few super spiritual saints. It is a daily reality for every believer and for every local church. Now, I'm going to use a phrase now that I used back when I taught on spiritual warfare. Please hear this. There is no spiritual Switzerland. You remember World War II raged? The whole world was caught up except for one little country, Switzerland sat right there in the middle and everybody left it alone there is no spiritual Switzerland there is nowhere you can retreat behind the Alps and you can hide the battle is here and it will come to you the only question is whether you and I will take up, put on our armor and stand or whether I just simply get rolled over Okay, it is a reality do I understand that Many of us experience problems in marriage, or family, or friendships, and all it really is is it's a symptom of spiritual warfare going on around us. And if I turn, and I know none of y'all have ever done this, but I've read books and there are people who do this, suddenly the spouse and I are having a problem and I turn and they become my enemy. And once again, what you need to do in that moment is reach out and touch them. And if you can do this, okay, flesh and blood, you're not the problem. Okay? That's not the issue. Do we believe that? Do we know that? With our kids? when there may be things going on in your job at work? Do we recognize that? Are, are we engaged thinking, this is where Paul's saying, be alert. Pay attention to what's going on. Again, I remind you, and you want to talk spiritual warfare, the Garden of Gethsemane, the ultimate in spiritual warfare is going on. And what are Peter, James, and John doing? <laughs> they're sleeping, literally. I mean, you got to know in heaven, they're going to be saying, I, I, I have no idea how I missed that. I mean, the battle is raging, and they are asleep feet away. It is entirely possible for you and me to do that do we recognize this is it now let me be clear not everything is a result of spiritual attack you and i live in a fallen world my 58 year old body does not do what a 38 year old body do which did not do what an 18 year old body it's it's part of living in a fallen broken world i'm getting older things break down not everything is a spiritual attack there, there is sometimes a result of my own sin and I can't wage spiritual warfare against such things. But there is a huge danger for us in the West to live like practical atheists or practical materialists. That everything is described and explained by natural forces. And that is way outside the biblical worldview. Do we recognize this is it? And When I'm confronted with these things, am I seeking God as to whether they're a result of spiritual warfare? So if you start noticing unusual levels of friction in a relationship, it might be your marriage, it might be with your children, it might be with a neighbor, do I take the time to stop and seek God and say, is there something spiritual going on here? Is there something that that is happening underneath this? And paying attention. It might be in a physical thing with my body. Do I seek God regarding that? Any of these areas, am I seeking and asking? Now, the second thing, second question, is am I engaging then in spiritual warfare? It's not enough to recognize that it's going on. Am I engaging in the spiritual warfare? I have to actively engage in it. Notice, remember, sit, no commands. Sit is simply. This is what God has done for you. Stand, we're now at imperatives. We're now at commands. The command to stand, the command to take up, the command to put on, all of these are commands to us to do it. So here's how I answer if I'm actually doing it. Do I regularly wrestle in prayer to see God's will accomplished in my life or the life of those around me? And I want to encourage you to start locally. Okay, before you move globally, before we start doing spiritual warfare across the globe, let's just start locally. Am I wrestling in prayer for the will of God to be accomplished? If you are a parent and you want to know where to start with spiritual warfare, start with your children. Please, for the love of God, start with your children. Cry out every single day ask God to give you a heart for the gospel to prosper. It was a scary prayer, but I remember day after day driving down to work in the morning and telling God, I don't care if you send them off to be a missionary somewhere else. I never get to hear from them again. I don't get to see my grandchildren, even if they die for the cause of the As long as the gospel prospers in their little hearts, please plant the gospel in their heart and I'm grateful to say, despite all the ways I screwed up, God has been gracious and faithful in my four children to do that. Are you doing that? Are you doing it for your spouse? There's one person that gets prayed for in my prayer list every day, and that is Linda. Do you cry out for God's protection and blessing and will to be accomplished in your spouse? Or, not that anybody here would do this, but or do you view them as your enemy? Because, friends, that, that, is, that is not a way forward. Is my prayer life predominantly concerned with comfort and ease or the advance of God's kingdom? Maybe record your prayer one day or write down the things you pray for. How many of them are concerned with my own prayer and ease? And how many of them are concerned with the eternal destiny of people, with the advance of Of the kingdom of God those are two very different types of prayer and there's a place for both God is concerned with my life and my needs and my things but is that what dominates because if you read the scripture that's not what dominates if you read Paul's prayers what dominates is the cause of the gospel and the cause of the kingdom Am I specifically praying for the gospel to advance among my family, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbors, and around the world? If you can't figure out what else to pray for, that will give you enough to let you pray for quite a bit each day. Praying for our missionaries, praying for the people you know that do not yet know Christ through the gospel, asking God to open doors. Friends, The enemy would love for you and me to live as practical atheists, spiritual materialists, as if God and Satan are not actively involved that this whole thing is not really happening. But that's simply not true. It is happening. Are we going to be engaged in doing that? Now, what we're going to do, uh, I, I want to just briefly remind us of Sit, Walk, Stand, and then we're going to actually sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God together. I want to encourage you in this little series. It's just a little three-week series. It's a quick skip through Ephesians. It's not verse by verse like we normally go. But I want to encourage you to remember these truths and live them out. I especially hope, if nothing else, grasp and lay hold of that idea of being seated with Christ. That every blessing of God is yours in Christ Jesus that is the foundation and the fuel of everything else we do it is always gospel not law out of the gospel we can now start to walk in obedience to the law but friends it is always the gospel It is always God's prior work secondly that we walk our life in the world please begin to view the people around you not as your enemy, but objects of our prayers and our affection and our love and our grace, no matter how they're responding to us, that we are looking and saying, what would cause the gospel to flourish here? And then finally, our warfare with the enemy stand, that we are called to engage in that. You and I have a mission. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was at the county fair and I was talking to an elderly gentleman and I'd shared the gospel with him. We talked a little bit. And I said, so are you involved in a church? And he said, well, actually I am in Arizona where I'm from. And we chatted a little bit more and found out he was actually a 1959 grad of the Naval Academy. And, of course, I'm 83. So we talked about that a little bit. And then he found out. He said, what did you do? And I said, I went in the Marine Corps. And he reminded me. He says, ah. Uh, he said, 83. He said, you went in when President Reagan was the president. I said, yes. He said, you remember what President Reagan said about the Marines? He said, that... Other people go through life and they wonder if they've made a difference. A Marine never has to wonder about that. Okay, well, maybe that's true. I want to tell you this. If you are a believer, you have a cause. You've been given the ultimate cause. Whatever I did as a Marine may come, go, flourish, not flourish. What you and I do in this warfare that's raging around us is of eternal consequence. And if you are here and you are in Christ, you've been given everything you need for that. And it does not matter if you were bed bound and could never leave your room for the rest of your life. You could engage through this and make all the difference for eternity. That's the gift and the call of God for every one of us. So what we're going to do, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing this great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And I want you to, as you look at the words to this hymn when we sing it i want you to notice kind of the sit walk stand theme in there what god has done for us how we walk that out and then how we do spiritual warfare and at the end i'll come forward and we will have our word of benediction father we thank you that you are in fact a mighty fortress that the spirit and the gifts are ours that your word rules and reigns over all things father It can be a fearful thing to us when we think that the enemy would set his sights on us, that this world could be filled with demonic powers that would be arrayed against us individually, against our families, and against our church. But Lord, we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We know that your plan, your will, your purposes will be accomplished. And so, Lord, not in a spirit of arrogance, but in a spirit of trust in you, we say, let them come. Lord, let the battle come, because we want to see your victory established. Lord, we pray for the people we know where the gospel is not flourishing in their lives. Oh, God, bring them to our minds each and every day. Father, hear our prayers do the work to extend the kingdom, Lord, we want to see more and more knees bowing to Jesus Christ so that he receives the praise and the honor and the glory uh, and the acclaim that he is due. Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done in us. Would you please remind us every day of these deep truths that we are seated with Christ, that we sit with him. Therefore, we can walk and we can stand to see your will done in the earth today. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to conclude with a word of benediction. We're going to, again, as I've done before you, St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. I encourage you to receive these provisions of God. May Christ be your shield today. Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ beneath you. Christ above you, Christ on your right, Christ on your left. May Christ be with you, Christ be in you alone and in multitude, near and afar. For all you face and for all your life, may you live in the protection and power of his blessing. Go forth and be a blessing to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.